Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, February the 17th, 2023, coming to the end of the week. Beginning of the week, we did a good show with an academic at UCLA in Los Angeles, H. Sami Alim, one of the leading hip-hop scholars in the world. He heads up a new hip-hop cultural institute at uh, UCLA, celebrating the 50th birthday of hip-hop music. Uh, and he has a new book out, an edited book, Freedom Moves, Hip-Hop Knowledges, Pedagogies and Futures treats hip-hop as a form, I think, of liberation, politicizes it, of course, which uh, I don't think anyone would argue with. My guest today on the show has also written about hip-hop. Uh, he's another academic, Michael P. Jeffries. Rather than teaching at UCLA, he teaches at Wellesley College, just outside Boston. Uh, his book on hip-hop was Thug Life, Race, Gender, and the Meaning of Hip-Hop, I think, dealing in some ways similar themes to uh, Sami Alim's book. Um, Michael Jeffries is a, uh, a writer who, who focuses, I think, on liberation, on freedom, and of course, on race. Uh, his second book was uh, Paint the White House Black, Barack Obama and the Meaning of Race in America. Not the first or the last book on the meaning of race in the United States, perhaps the central theme in its tragic history. Um, he's also written a book exposing, I think, some of the contradictions of uh, comedy, uh, behind the laughs, community and inequality in comedy. So he's also uh, someone who's interested in inequality. And he has a new book out, which brings together, I think, a lot of his uh, intellectual academic interests, Black and Queer on Campus. It's just out. And Michael is joining us from um, Wellesley College, just outside Boston. Uh, Michael, is there a, a, a narrative line in, in your work between your work on hip hop and comedy and the Obama presidency to this new book on black and queer on campus? Yes, I think there is. Thanks for the question. I think if, if there is a line, it's I'm trying to figure out the relationship between culture, that is the beliefs and values and practices of everyday people and institutions. So when I wrote about rap music, I talked about the rap music industry, the record industry. When I wrote about comedy, I talked about the comedy industry. And I tried to figure out how were forces like race and gender operating in the context of those industries. And I think with this book, uh, the industry would be higher education. And I'm really trying to address some of those same questions about race and gender as forces that shape the lives of the people who live and work in those contexts. Michael, we've done a lot of shows on that very institution, uh, American universities. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with, with some of the books. One with Charlie Eaton about the neoliberal nature of many universities. Another with Steve Jones about what exactly we're trying to do at universities, perhaps suggesting they're redundant. A third with an excellent scholar, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, Devarian Baldwin, he teaches at uh, Trinity College about uh, how universities are plundering our city. His book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, is one I've come back to lots of times before. And then with Evan 
Mandry, another critic of universities, suggesting that they're part of our new aristocratic architecture of life. Uh, his book, Poison Ivy, How Leaps, Colleges, Divides Us, uh, was a big hit last year. Where do you stand in this debate? Are the universities the problem or the solution or both? Especially well, the ones that, you know, like Wesley, Wellesley, where you teach. Yeah, I'm a believer in the potential of colleges and universities still. Um, you know, the, the books that you pointed to, I think, make some really important points about the neoliberal environment that we're all living and working in. And the fact that colleges and universities are certainly not exempt from the pressures of those conditions. Um, I, I think what I try to focus on in much of uh, this book is universities as a site, really a residential site for young people who are just develop, still developing. I mean, when they arrive at college, the students in my book are 17, 18, 19 years old. They're still trying to figure things out, figure out who they are, figure out what they want in life. And I think the conversations I had really point to the fact that universities really can be a fantastic site for doing some of that developmental work still. Now we have an obligation to create spaces that are welcoming and productive for all kinds of students, but can the universities continue to provide that function in addition to their central function, which is uh, educating folks in the classroom? I think the answer still has to be yes. Michael, you say you, and I mean, obviously you're not speaking on behalf of all universities, but I think you're the academic dean at, or, or you have a senior position at Wellesley as long as alongside your academic position. So maybe you are speaking semi-officially. But this idea of an obligation for quote-unquote safe space is very controversial. There are some people who think that universities shouldn't be safe, that everyone needs to be exposed to challenges which might upset them one way or the other. Where do you stand on this and how does this fit into the, uh, the project of Black and Queer on campus in terms of this new book? It's a great question. I think part of it hinges on the definition of the word safety. Uh, but, but let me start where, where you sort of ended up. Uh, do we uh, here and elsewhere believe that students must be challenged in order to grow? Unequivocally, yes. That is, uh, I mean, this is such an incredible opportunity in anyone's life um, to encounter new ideas, uh, to engage in arguments on their merits, to work with evidence, uh, to hopefully arrive at new conclusions and imagine things that we've never imagined before. We can't do that if we don't challenge ourselves as instructors, faculty, and if the students aren't challenged in our classrooms. So no question, the, student has, the students uh, here and elsewhere uh, have to be put in challenging positions. That's how we all grow. I think the word safety, though, uh, has taken on a few different meanings. And uh, part of it is, I think, what we might call the more traditional meaning, safety from harm, uh, safety from violence, which for LGBTQ plus folk and for Black folk in this country has never been a given, safety from physical harm. That's never been a given. Um, and then I think that there's another kind of safety that uh, some folks uh, from later generations, from more recent generations are using, and that's sort of safety from uh, persistent emotional harassment. Um, and that's a more kind of nebulous definition of safety uh, that I think is more open to contestation and discussion. And I think what the students in the book are hoping for are really uh, carving out spaces so they can do that development, um, not completely shrouded from the rest of their community, but with a kind of baseline of understanding, respect, and dignity that they might not get in other spaces on their campuses. 
Do you think though some kids and uh, you you deal with them on a daily basis are, are are now too sensitive? I mean, this is one of the the central debates within uh, the new culture wars, one kind or another. You've got on the one hand people like DeSantis, on the other hand people who are very much opposed to uh, any DeSantis-like critique of of uh, what they call woke culture. Are some people too sensitive? I really don't quite know how to answer that. I, you know, I think it's it's very difficult for me to answer that on a person by person basis. Uh, you never know what folks have dealt with in their past when it comes to uh, trauma or hardship. And uh, would we call someone too sensitive who's been legitimately traumatized in their life uh, by, um, you know, violence that's outside of their control? I, I think that's a really difficult call to make. I, I think what's important really to distinguish is not to allow this conversation about uh, sensitivity and the generational divide to get in the way of what we're really doing at the university and college level, which is working with evidence-based arguments to pursue evidence-based solutions to the problems that we face as a society. And, you know, so much of what's happening in the so-called culture wars is not new at all. It's a rehashing of the same old efforts to suppress uh, the real history of this country, and to silence uh, voices of criticism that absolutely need to be heard if we're to make any substantive progress. You made an interesting point, uh, Michael. You said it's um, hard to determine sensitivity because we don't know what people have experienced. Do you think that if someone has experienced some terrible injustice as a child, from parents in terms of race or sexual abuse or uh, some some other form of injustice that that they have or they should have more slack than others who who haven't experienced that. I'm not sure, quite sure how what kind of criteria we would use to determine that. I'm not sure either. I think what I'm striving toward here is something like uh, equal opportunity uh, for everyone, regardless of their circumstances and the principle of equity, right? And what equity means is not that you treat everybody exactly the same, it's that you treat folks in such a way that accounts for unearned disadvantages in ways that allow them to reach their full potential. And on a case-by-case -case basis, those uh, tactics can be very, very different. But if, if the question is really about the principle of equity uh, versus the principle of equality, I think equity is really the most important thing to consider because equity takes true disadvantage into account. I think, Michael, one of the things that sometimes gets on, on, on critics' nerves about some of this stuff is that we always speak about equity and injustice, but the universities, and I, 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 I'm curious as which universities you went to to research your book, uh, Black and Queer on Campus, but Wellesley, for example, where you teach, is an elite institution. It costs, I don't know, $70,000, $80,000 a year to attend, you have to be incredibly smart to go there. So you're training a new elite. Tell me a little bit more about the book. You, you spoke, I know, to a number of uh, students. What kind of universities uh, did you focus on for the book? Uh, well, they're all universities, almost all of them universities, and, and that's important to note. So the size is something they all uh, have in common. And I went to a mix of both public and private institutions. Uh, some of them are known for their prestige, and some of them are not necessarily known for their prestige. Uh, but what I encountered in the students that I spoke with, and, and what we have here on campus, is really a, a group of students who come from a range of different backgrounds. 
So there are some schools that sit at a different level of prestige historically than others. But I think even if you look at, at those schools and the composition of the student body, students are still bringing a real range of experiences to those campuses when they arrive. Uh, and that's really the strength of coming to a place like Wellesley. It's strength and diversity. And honestly, it's, uh, that strength and diversity is something that I found at many of the HBCUs I visited as well, which are assumed to be homogenous because of the history of black colleges and universities in this country. But the reality is there's tremendous diversity on these campuses within the black diaspora and even beyond because not all HBCUs uh, have 100% uh, black student population these days. My daughter's at Bryn Mawr. Um... And I, I was a sister school to Wellesley. I think it's relatively similar, part of the Seven Sisters. She would argue otherwise, but I guess uh, the students tend to be a little bit more critical of their institutions than the professors. When you say diverse, what do you mean by the diversity at Wellesley? There's diversity of socioeconomic class, uh, diversity along the lines of race and ethnicity, diversity along the lines of uh, religious affiliation, uh, national origin, um, there's just a there's just a range of different experiences. There's gender diversity on the campus, uh, so there's just a range of different experiences uh, that we bring to the table here. And that really is, I said, the value of coming to a place like this is you get the chance to learn from your classmates. It's not just about receiving knowledge from the professors. It's about the experience of living in community, a residential community, a residential learning community with folks who are different from you. In terms of the research for the book and the conversations you had, you said you went to a number of different universities, uh, elite institutions like Wellesley and state universities. Did you find much of a difference in the response of the kids you talked to for, uh, for the book? I mean, did you specifically focus on black and queer students or was this... Uh, almost uh, did, did you talk to all the students about what it was like to be black and queer on campus? Yes, I spoke specifically to black and queer students. Uh, what I did is I reached out uh, where I could find information about uh, queer students of color organizations or black queer student organizations. I reached out to those organizations and tried to figure out if they had membership who would be interested in talking to me. So it really was a, a more targeted outreach to folks who identify as black and LGBTQ+. Uh, so that really was uh, the composition of the sample that I spoke with in the book. And um, again, even within that group, which is more limited, right? Limited by yeah. LGBTQ plus status, limited by race. Um, there are a wealth of experiences contained among the group of students that I spoke with. Just incredible diversity in terms of what I heard. And what about male versus female? How did that break down? Fairly similar? Yeah. So, I mean, there was a real mix. I mean, I think when you're talking about um, sex and gender identity, um, one of the things about the book is that there are plenty of students that I spoke with who identify as uh, non-binary when it comes to their gender and uh, use pronouns other than he or, or she. Um, so I spoke with people who identify as men, women, uh, and any other sort of category under the sun. And um, throughout those, those, those categories, um, I think that what we heard are that there are significant challenges for black LGBTQ plus students on campus and also really rich opportunities for development and friendship and happiness. I gotta avoid getting myself into trouble here, Michael. I probably already have in this conversation, but um, you can't change your race, of course. You're born black or white. I'm not suggesting you can change your sexuality and I, I don't wanna get dragged into a debate about 
whether or not it's given or acquired. But is there a difference between blackness and queerness in terms of um, how people identify, given that you're born black and that, you know, from the age of, I don't know, one month old, it's pretty obvious? Yeah, well, I think let's just start with the blackness question, um, because I think that that's one way to think about race, right, which is that you're born into a racial category. But of course, what we know is that race is socially determined and the way you are read racially does change from context to context. So, for example, race in Brazil does not function the same way that race in the United States does. So you might have someone who phenotypically looks uh, the same way, no matter what country they're in but the way they're treated in a kind of racial sense might change from country to country. So in that case, race is always being socially constructed and socially negotiated. Uh, and in that way, you know, it adds kind of a fluidity to it that I think we more readily associate with sexuality and gender identification. Having said that... Let, uh, let me just jump in here. You, you said that, that race is socially determined. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that you can be at least visually white and yet black or vice versa? Well, I, you know, I think the term, so let me, let me say what it means. One is that these categories do not exist outside of both social and political institutions that we have, right? So the reasons that these categories beca become something like common sense is because they're legislated and defined by law, right? Throughout the history of this country, we've had categories pop up and disappear and some groups that weren't considered white, for example, like uh, Irish folks, for example, earlier in the history of this country were not considered white folks in the same way uh, that folks with English, uh, with that British uh, background were considered. So, so we've had these categories change over time. And the fact that these racial categories change over time as a result of new laws, new institutions, new cultural patterns, means that biology is not necessarily destiny when it comes to racial categories. So that's what I mean when I say race changes. And I think that when you talk about gender and sexuality, uh, there's a kind of similar story going on in, in many respects, right? The notion that there are only two categories when it comes to sex, or the notion that there are only two categories when it comes to gender that's just not true. I mean, people live their lives in all sorts of different ways that disprove that. And there are histories, uh, not just uh, American or colonial histories, but pre-colonial histories among indigenous folks, for example, of you know, folks uh, who don't identify as a one space or another along that binary. And so, so that's what I mean when I say these things are socially constructed. The notion that there are these fixed categories that survive over time and never change no matter what we do, no matter what laws we pass, that's just not the case. I think one more thing though on this point about gender and race, I think that especially in the American context, um, one of the issues here is the notion that uh, racial phenotype and skin color in particular is something that is sort of instantly recognizable and readable or usually treated as though it is instantly recognizable and readable, right? Whereas uh, sexuality, not necessarily gender presentation, but sexuality is not necessarily readily apparent and readable in the same way that race has become in the American context. So it's not exactly the same, but this principle that these categories are arrived at based on social interactions and laws and institutions, I think that's really important to keep in mind. I know one of the, uh, I don't say new fashions, but new ways of thinking about sexuality, particularly on campuses, to not position oneself either in the, the, hetero, the hetero or the homosexual community. And 
suggest you flip between the two. Do you think you can do the same ultimately, given that you're treating these two categories in the same conceptual sense with race, that you can say, or you could have kids at Wellesley or somewhere else, say, well, I actually haven't decided whether I'm black or white yet. Well, I think there are people who do that. I think there are people who would say they haven't decided whether they're black or white yet or some other sort of race, and, and that's perfectly okay. Uh, I think that the question, though, becomes how, over the course of your life, do you uh, reconcile and live the kind of social negotiation that takes place um, in an American racial context, right? So at some point, right, no matter what you identify as, you may be treated as a member of a racial group. And usually what happens is you take that information and you take that treatment along with your cultural upbringing and a host of other factors, and you arrive at something like a stable racial identity that you kind of stick with across the rest of the time of your life. Um, but I think we would be kidding ourselves to say that, you know, there's a racial identity that you, that you are assigned as a child, and it stays exactly the same for all people from the time you're a child till the time you're old and gray. I mean, I think that many of us continue to work through these things uh, as we grow older. And especially, like I said, if we, if we move to a totally different place in the world, um, you're faced with a whole new different set of negotiations and your body is red in a really different way. And you have to kind of recalibrate. Uh, go, going back to my conversation with Sami Alim on hip hop, um, big fan of Chuck D. Actually, I've worked with him in the past. Um, hip hop seems to me to be a movement, a culture looking outwards, looking into the world in a, in a collective communitarian sense, highly political, of course. In 2023, when America seems on the brink of another war in Ukraine, we have global warming, injustice, inequality, blah, blah, blah. Some people might say, do we really, should, should kids at these top universities or, or not top universities, state universities, should they really be being driven inward and concerning themselves almost exclusively with their racial or sexual identity? Is there a problem here, Michael, that... Um, that, that, that we're turning all our kids into solitary, narcissistic types? Well, I don't think that's how race is experienced as a solitary or narcissistic endeavor. I think it's experienced really as an outward political endeavor and as a collective endeavor. So, you know, I think there has to be some introspection and some looking inward. That's part of everyone's psychological development. But ultimately, right, these kind of choices that you make and the places you arrive in terms of your own personal identity have dramatic effects in terms of the way we organize our politics and think about our role in the world as citizens, both domestically and as global citizens. So I think this is necessary work, right? To, to understand the American colonial project, for example, you, you have to understand how the search for knowledge and the development of knowledge categorize things according to sexual groups and according to racial groups. These are political projects in as much as they are products of identity, right? And we realize that. And once we realize that, we understand that the work of identity cannot be separated from the work of public politics. And of course, you're very familiar with the work of public politics. You wrote the book, as I said, Paint the White House Black, Barack Obama and the Meaning of Race in America. Could you imagine a similar book if um, Biden's transportation secretary, Budigit, Budigit, uh, maybe Biden won't run this time around, he, he, he becomes president. Uh, are they equivalent in some way or form? And do you think that the kind of kids you talk to, the black and queer kids that you interviewed, do they care about the identity of their public officials, their elected public officials? 
Absolutely. Let me start with that second question because it speaks to the role of public figures for the students, the students that I spoke with in the book. Uh, these students are very aware of the public recognition of LGBTQ plus folk and the public recognition and visibility of black queer folk. Um, when they see people who have succeeded uh, and people who are capable and celebrated and visible, it helps them believe that they can do it too, even if they don't aspire to be politicians or celebrities or whatever it might be. It provides a sense of uh, shared visibility and hope. So it's really important that we continue to have these, at the representational level, these examples for students to look up to. In terms of what the influence of someone like uh, Pete Buttigieg might be on our kind of national politics, uh, and in particular on our queer politics, I think that story is really yet to be written. Um, we've never really seen an election with someone uh, Buttigieg's status and stature at the presidential level uh, speak to issues of queer politics. And this is a really important time for those issues. I mean, when you look at uh, what's going on with some of the proposed legislation in Florida, uh, when you look at the ways that LGBTQ plus folk felt uh, targeted during the Trump administration, uh, this is a time of crisis for many people in those communities, and in particular for queer Black folk, who, although um, they are certainly concerned with what we might call uh, mainstream gay rights issues like gay marriage, for example, have always tried to express a broader range of concerns around what dignity, respect, and security might look like for their communities. Um, things like uh, the carceral state in America, things like uh, employment, uh, housing discrimination, all of these kinds of multiple intersecting disadvantages have been core to queer black experiences. And it might take someone who's more familiar with LGBTQ plus politics to really delve into the history and get underneath them. A couple of weeks ago, we did a show with a young woman, uh, Lamia, uh, La Lamia H, I don't know her full name. Uh, she's a queer Muslim woman uh, and, and wrote a book, an autobiography, a memoir, focusing on her experience in the America of Trump. How, how eerie, how haunting, how scary was the Trump experience for the kids you talked to for your study? You know, well, I think that there, you know, there are two ways to answer the question. One is we can expand the sample beyond the study. I mean, we have studies uh, from research groups that have looked at what this experience was like and what we saw is that um, people were afraid to live out their gender identity and sexuality publicly in ways that they hadn't been before the administration. Um, there was an uptick in uh, white supremacist activism and much of the white supremacist rhetoric was connected to uh, misogyny and anti-gay rhetoric as well. Uh, so this, uh, this is a really difficult time for everyone in the country, I would argue, and in particular for these groups that were really under siege. Now, as for my students in the book, uh, the way they experienced it, I think there are a couple of different things that happened. Um, one, many of the students I, I spoke with were really beaten down by the Trump years, and that caused them um, to uh, take a step back and try to pay less attention to social media and less attention to the news mm -hmm. and less attention to politics, because every single day felt like it was an assault, whether he's saying there are good people on both sides of the the Charlottesville terrorism, or he's talking about the border wall. Um, you know, there was just a sense that every day it was one thing after another. And they tried to protect themselves by not paying as much attention as possible, not paying as much attention as we might assume they would. Then there were other students who thought, you know what, 
this moment in American history, it needs us. And, you know, we need to imagine a totally different political future from this country that really gets beyond some of its colonial history, uh, the sort of patterns of capitalism and inequality that we've seen, and certainly the patterns of racial inequality and racism that continue to structure our society. And these students are really having their political awakening during college and trying to figure out ways to get involved with politics beyond electoral politics, really looking at things like activism and social movements at, local, at the local level to try to imagine new futures for all of us. I'm not an expert on sexual politics, but there seems to be somewhat of a civil war within the community now. Andrew Sullivan, a conservative, a gay conservative, uh, very prominent in this. Um, he's been very outspoken on the, the, the trans issue. How, how does that issue come up in your study when you spoke to black and queer students on campus? Um, did, did, did the trans category, was that one that worked within your um within the, the narrative of the book or did there was there a, a third category theoretically thank you for the question it's a great question um i think so one of the ways to answer it is if you look at the history of uh gay student organizations in this country most of them were founded many of them were founded as gay student or lesbian student organizations right there wasn't as much discussion in the late 20th century about transgender folk as a category that was easily and clearly aligned with gay and lesbian folk. Now that, that link, right, the expansion of that umbrella has happened steadily over the course of the 20th century and gone into the 21st century. But what I heard from students in the book um, is that, you know, you can't take for granted that an LGBTQ plus student organization is going to prioritize some of the issues that are important to uh, transgender students. Um, so these are groups that have always been linked by their political history in this country. Um, but when you look at the, the issues that are um, important to the student organizations that I was connected with, it's, it's, it can get messy. And, and I think the, the positive thing about this is that these are the spaces where these discussions are happening. Um, these are not a group of students who are cowering away from the, the diversity within the umbrella of queerness, right? I mean, I haven't mentioned bisexual folk, but they're included in this as well. And um, there are just a whole bunch of different categories and, and uh, a range of terminology that we have to wrestle with and work through. And, and these are the spaces where I think it's happening most seriously on campus. Uh, but I think you're right to point to it because um, transgender folk do not necessarily align themselves perfectly with people who identify strictly as gay or lesbian. Yeah, the terminology uh, I'm sure there are comics who do entire stand-up routines on, around this terminology. Of course, we know what LGBT is. And then the new one I was just doing a little bit of research before is now there is an LGBTQIA+. Do we need to put a cap on all this terminology, uh, Michael? Come up with some terms and then move ahead. Or are these terms going to continually evolve and we should take each new one fairly seriously? I think they're going to continue to evolve. Uh, you know, I, I, and I do think we should take them seriously. You know, if, if, you, if you look at the history of some of these terms, I mean, the history of the term transgender, for example, is a good one. Um, I think, you know, we most of the time we sort of understand it now, uh, transgender, as the notion that, um, you know, you would be born um, with a sex assignment that doesn't that has certain cultural expectations and the gender that you enact doesn't 
match up with the expectations of the sex assignment. I think that's really the best way to think about the term transgender now, but in previous iterations and previous generations, it meant, it meant things uh, that were not limited to that, uh, to, to that understanding. Uh, it meant people who had or were transitioning from one sex gender pairing to another, from male and masculine identified to female and feminine identified. Um, so, so that term in and of itself has undergone a lot of change just in the past 30 or, or 25 years. And I think that's instructive because it shows that you know, this is a fluid uh, situation. And, and I think to cap it or dismiss it because there are changes and contests over the meaning of these terms really does nobody uh, any good because, uh, first of all, the folks who are really have the greatest investment of this are the folks who are living it out in their lives. And maybe we should take a cue from them, right? And if we have trouble understanding or, or, or uh, trouble keeping up with the different terms that they, that they arrive at, maybe we should just sort of trust them to set the agenda and engage in good faith so that we can get to a better place of understanding. Michael, how do the parents play into this? I mean, obviously, these kids are away at college, so they are grown up or certainly growing up. I know parents uh, particularly, or some parents I know at least, are particularly engaged and uh, infuriated, actually, with some issues around trans and some of the, the chemical treatments which they believe shouldn't be available to young kids. This is uh, not some, maybe not young kids, but um, uh, uh, teenagers. Uh, Sullivan, of course, feels very strongly on this. What, what was your conclusion on the parental um, piece of, of, of black and queer on campus? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so I didn't speak with parents for the book. So I want to make that very clear. So everything that I heard about, I mean, a lot of the kids must have talked about. Yeah, parents. exactly. Right. So everything that I heard about the parents, I heard from the students themselves. And really what I heard was a, a range of things. But I didn't hear many stories about like, uh, you know, just sort of unqualified affirmation from the moment it became an issue in their child's identity and, until now. I think that many parents struggle uh, with the way that these young people choose to identify and the lifestyles that they embrace. Um, and I think that it's an ongoing um, sort of negotiation for many of the students in the book who might feel comfortable living one way when they're away at college, but then when they return back to their home communities, can't live with that same sense of comfort and um, social openness. So I think it's a negotiation that our students are, are still uh, dealing with in, in very different ways. And there's room for growth. I mean, what I will say is that one of the things that became apparent is that um, change is a constant. So I spoke with students who, when they first talked about their gender identity and sexuality with their parents, were terrified and had no idea how their parents would react. And maybe the reaction was a really negative one in the beginning. But with the support of their friends, they didn't give up on the relationship and have gradually moved to a better place, have taken baby steps toward not only acceptance, but affirmation and um, pride in their gender identity coming from their parents. So it is possible, but young people need support in having those conversations still, in particular, the students in my book. Yeah, one of the sad things about my conversation with uh, Lamia H was that she couldn't tell her parents, which is why she was anonymous, although they didn't live in the United States. Finally, Michael, it's a important and interesting conversation and um, I think it needs to be spoken about in a 
in a in a responsible way. I think on both sides, there sometimes tends to be a little bit of intolerance and hysteria. But I think this is a good conversation. What, what were the the practical um, lessons that could be learned from your book in terms of black and queer on campus? Obviously, we want students to be happier and yep. to lead more meaningful and productive lives. How yep. can we enable that? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I think at the, so at the university and college level, there are a few things that we can and must do. Uh, one is we need to be able to listen to these students about what they're, and not dismiss them. Now that doesn't mean that we as uh, faculty, staff, administration, can grant every request that a student or a student group makes. But if we don't have open channels of communication between these student groups and uh, the folks who work at the college, we're never going to get anywhere. So really uh, placing great value on keeping the lens of communication open is a very, very valuable sort of lesson and takeaway. We can't sort of paint this as an adversarial relationship because it isn't. The future of the university and college campus depends on our being able to listen to the students. Secondly, we need to pay attention to diversity in all areas of recruitment when it comes to faculty and staff. One of the things that I heard from the students in the book is that they really didn't feel on either campus, either at predominantly white campuses or at historically black colleges and universities, that there were people who worked as faculty and staff who they could look up to as mentors who shared similar life experiences to them. And we need to be building deep and diverse candidate pools, no matter what kind of position we're talking about, so that we have the opportunity to attract uh, excellent people from all walks of life to our colleges and universities, especially those who might add some value to the development of students who identify as LGBTQ+. Third, I think it's really important that we understand and give respect to the field of LGBTQ plus studies as an academic enterprise, right? And I think that can be very difficult for some folks who just view it as like identity politics or it's this kind of silly indulgence and there's not really, there's not really serious empirical academic work being done. We, we need to completely do away <laughs> with that kind of dismissal of this work because it is so essential to where we find ourselves as researchers and as social beings, right? If you look at the field of genetics, for example, and the work that's been done in gender and genetics, this is an entirely new field of research when it comes to the kind of um, uh, hard scientific aspect of it. But the principles and the way we talk about gender have a longer history in women's and gender studies that we have to be able to integrate into the science. Or when you think about political advocacy and the gay rights issue, gay rights issues that we're dealing with in our countries today, debates over gay marriage, right? These are legislative issues that have a really long and interesting history in the gay studies literature. So if we, if we dismiss this area of study as somehow trivial because it has something to do with anything to do with identity, uh, we're just, we're pulling the wool over our eyes as learners, right? For, forget about uh, our status as universities and, and, and institutions that are, that are supposed to provide like employment for folks. Um, we're just missing a, a kind of huge new wave, a really intellectually exciting wave in scholarship. So I would say prioritizing LGBTQ plus studies is another practical step that colleges and universities can and must take. 